You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Like normal, great to see you all this morning. Um, welcome. It's great to all have you here. It's great to all worship together and sit in the Word together. Um, before I really say much today, we're going to jump straight into the Scripture. Um, so if you've got your Bible there or your phone or whatever Bible app you have, you turn to me with me to Revelation 4. We're going to read the whole chapter, what's 11 verses. And this will hopefully just give us a bit of content and insight into um, what we're going to go into today. So Revelation 4 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carmelin. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders. And seated on the throne, thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the thr- throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and pearls of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the, se- <coughs> Sorry. Which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, each side, the throne of the four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never ceased to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive the glory and the honour and the power. For, great, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I don't know. Um, all good. Thanks, man. Um, don't know about you, but that, that chapter gives you a pretty incredible insight of what the throne room of God is and a pretty incredible description of what's there. Um, so after reading that, going through today, as you know, we're going through the series, The Attributes of God. We've just finished the mini-series inside the series of The Omnis of God, and now we're going to continue into the other attributes. So today we're going to actually look at the holiness of God. It's one thing to say that God is holy and not really think about what that means. What's God's holiness look like? For starters, through our life, this comes up that God is holy. But not just holy, as we just read in Revelation, he is holy, holy, holy. How many times do we refer to God being holy and sing it in a song? And then not fully grasping what it's actually saying about him and his character. It's really important as is a really important part of his character, as it says, he's not just holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. Have I lost you yet? If so, that's all right. We'll unpack it during this preach and you hear the word of God. If you're still with me, good, but you still need to hear the word of God. So we're good both ways. Um, so let's get in it. 
the word, so the Bible, the word of God creates an image of God being holy, but it paints a picture. The meaning of holiness is a lot deeper than what we can imagine. The word holy is mentioned just under 700 times in the Bible, and its verb form, what is sanctify, appears another 200 times. For a word to be mentioned just under 900 times, it's probably trying to tell us something. These references, <laughs> references to God being holy refer to him himself. They refer to places that he dwells. They refer to objects and sometimes even people. But they always directly um, ties back to God himself. Not to mention the holiness of God is the, attribute, is the only attribute that is tied with his name the most often in the Bible. Why is it important for us to know about God's holiness? Well, the first thing, it gives us a deeper understanding on who God is. Well, as we know, this is what we're trying to achieve through this series, to be able to worship and serve God in a deeper way. But he also has called us to live holy lives. And as fallen beings, this could cause a problem for us if we don't fully understand that. So let's get into it. Let's look at the holiness of God firstly and, the, and what the Bible paints this picture to be a deeper image. So what does it mean to be holy? If we look at the earthly view of holy... It's to be morally right. It's to live, have higher standards of morals and to live the life the best you can. If we look at God in the earthly understanding of holiness, it doesn't paint an amazing picture of how holy he is. We've got to dig into the word to find the deeper picture of what God's holiness is. So if we look at God for an earthly view, he's just another morally person trying to do the best he can. But that's not what God's holiness is. Some aspects are true. God is holy, he is perfect, his morals are perfect, but it's deeper than that. The Bible gives us a much deeper meaning to God's holiness than just being morally right. God's holiness has to be more than just being morally right. So God's holiness is the attribute that distinguishes him from all the other creations, all the other gods, everything that's been created. So let's look at uh, Exodus 15.11, if you have your Bibles. What says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? So a bit of background about this chapter. God's just led Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt. He's just set them free. They've witnessed some incredible acts of power and, and miracles through his love and what God has just done for his people. And the, this chapter is a song that Moses and the Israelites are singing back to God. This verse highlights a rhetorical question. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? So most of you know, Egypt, uh, just as one example, had multiple gods for just about anything. They had gods here, they had gods there, they had everything. The Bible actually accuses the Egyptians of being in idolatry because they had the other gods and they were serving them. But that's for another day. That's just a bit of background. Um, So from this verse, we can see that through God's holiness, he's set apart from all other things. Well, there's another meaning of holiness when in, terms, in terms of talking about God. It's to be set apart from other gods. It's to be high above all creation. We see that it states that God is majestic in holiness. It gives it a sense of royalty. He is high above. He is the king of holiness. He is set above in holiness. We see the next level of the meaning of holiness. We get that deeper picture from what the Bible is describing, that he's the king. He is high lifted up. He is above all in holiness. Nothing can match him in holiness. 
We sung it, before, sung it this morning, Henry, and Ian, it's not, read it in Ephesians. Thou art thou exalted far above all other gods, and God is in holiness. He's set apart. So 1 Samuel 2.2 2 says... There is, none, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So once again, a bit of contents about this verse. It's coming from uh, a woman called Hannah, who is one of two wives to Elkahan. Hopefully I said that right, but I'm not 100%. We'll go with that. Um, Elkanan had another wife who gave him children, but Hannah had no children because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, the first wife used to provoke Hannah because she had no kids. And year after year, Hannah would go up to the temple to the Lord to pray for kids. Um, I could keep going this description, but I need to cut it down. Otherwise, the overview is going to be bigger than the point, And that's not great. So <laughs> um, anyway, to cut a long story short, Hannah is blessed with a son from God whose name is Samuel. And Samuel is the key guy to the book of Samuel. Surprise, surprise. If you, if you don't believe me, read it. Um, if you do believe me, read it as well. It's all good. So but what I'm finally trying to get to, Samuel 2.2, 2, which is Hannah's prayer. Once again, we see God is distinguished by his holiness. In Hannah's prayer, we can see she states, there is none like you, that he is high above all other things. There is none like you. And through these couple of verses, Exodus and Samuel, we can start to see the picture of the word that God is painting about God's holiness. That God's holiness, there is none like him. His holiness was just... If his holiness was just the way that we view holiness on an earthly perspective, then we wouldn't see him high above ourselves, above much. Because the word paints the picture that he's set high, he's majestic in holiness, he's the king of holiness. It puts him on the next level that he is higher than any of us in holiness. That's why we can't look at God's holiness from an earthly perspective. We need to have a worldly understanding of what it is that God's holiness is. We need to understand God's holiness through the word and not the world. The word of God places God high above. There is none like him. He is high above everything, anything he's created in holiness. There is nothing like God. He is the king of holiness. There is nothing we can use as an example to grasp how holy he is. He is perfectly holy and nothing comes close to God. The Bible wants, wants our first thoughts of God to be that he is holy. So what do I mean by that? So the word holy is referring to God. It means that there is none like him. He is the one high above all. God is the one and only being who has the power to create the universe. And all, and all these other attributes make him God. Utterly unique. God is utterly unique to us. What brings me to the meaning of the word holy? That God is separated from us, high above us, and we are, not God, we are not on God's level when it comes to holiness. God is unique in his holiness. There is none like him. So let's go to a, this is going to be the key text that we're going to preach out of. So Isaiah 6, 1 to 5. I'll read it and we'll just chop and change back to it as well. But I'll read it first. It says, in the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of the robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each of them had six wings. Two covered his face, two covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, I have touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. So through this chapter, we get a great insight of God's holiness, but it also can bring up some problems for us. God is utterly unique in holiness. There is none like him. God's utterly unique holiness means he is so perfectly perfect in moral purity, what is holiness, that is so perfect it can be devastating. That we as sinful people can't even look, look at him and live in an unclean state. And we are not worthy to be in his presence. I'll explain more on that as we go on. So some content about this chapter. King Uzziah has just died. He ruled Israel for 52 years. What well, ended a lengthy time of prosperity for Israel. Uzziah, Uzziah had died by getting leprosy after he entered the temple where he was not allowed. And here we find Isaiah seeking God and gaining the image and the dream of God, who is the one true king that allowed him to spread hope to Israel. As we can see in Isaiah, we meet the seraphim. What, what are they, you might ask? They are fiery angelic beings. And no, I didn't add the word fiery for effect, but the word seraphim means flames. They are, they are literally on fire. There's a reason for this, and I'll explain. But the seraphim has six wings. Two cover their feet, two cover their face, and two they use to fly around. I'll go into more detail about them at another time. But to point this out, to get to the point, I'd like to point out that these creatures are a sinless, angelic being, and they still have to cover their face and feet in the presence of the Lord, of the Lord Almighty and in front of the Holy God. This should raise a problem for us. As I was looking for an example of God's holiness... Um, the Bible Project actually have a great sort of imagery that I'm sort of going to borrow. Um, so for an example of God's holiness is you can take our sun in the universe. If we look at the sun, it's got power. It generates life on our planet. We need it for warmth. We need it for growth. We need it to stay healthy. Um, there's nothing really like it in our universe. So in itself, it is unique. Um, so you could almost call it holy, but... It's not as holy as God because obviously God created it and there's a difference there, but we'll move on. Um, so saying that, the whole area around the sun as well is holy as it radiates out. The closer you are to the sun, the more dangerous it becomes. You're at a level where it's healthy for us, where it's good for us, where we can live comfortably with it. But if we try and take a rocket or something to the sun, quite quickly you can work out we're going to have some problems. We're going to burn up pretty quickly. We're not even going to get close to it. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the sun is God, so please don't start telling your friends that. That's, that's not what I'm getting at. What, what I'm using this as an example is the closer we get to the sun, the closer, the more dangerous it becomes, the more that we're going to burn up. The same with God's holiness, if we're not pure. The closer we get to God's holiness, it can actually destroy us. If we're in the presence of the Most High, where not even the seraphim can bear to look at Him because He is so holy, 
that we become a problem if we're still sinful. We can't be in the presence of God without burning up. So jumping back to Isaiah, the seraphim, if even the seraphim can't look at God and they're sinless beings, just imagine what would happen if we try and enter his presence as an unclean and impure, impure people. We'll burn up. It's like us trying to land on the sun. It's not going to end well. Not because God's holiness is a bad thing, but because his holiness is so good and so pure, we have no chance. There are so many examples in the Old Testament of people getting into trouble or even dying by entering the presence of God or touching something that's been made holy by God and being in an impure state and in sin. In the Old Testament, they used to, you can read in Leviticus, there we go, finally came out, um, that God had given them ways to know when they're impure and ways to become pure, ways to enter his presence in a pure state. Because if they didn't know, if they entered into that impure state, that would be the end for them. They had to do everything right. They had to be made pure in the sight of the Lord. If you want to know what these laws are, read Leviticus. Um, Some people are scared of it because they think it's boring, but it's actually a great book of insight. It actually gives you a great insight into... um, what it was like to follow God back then. If Jesus had never come, we would still be doing this. We'd be still trying to make ourselves pure by doing all these rituals. I'm sure all the sacrifices would annoy a lot of people these days, but <laughs> hey, that's what God put it. So God had given them strict outlines on how they could be pure, strict <laughs> guidelines that they had to meet to be um, pure. And if they weren't pure when they entered the sight of the Lord, then they had problems. So they knew they were able to approach him in the safest way possible. Anything outside of this was classed impure and not able to be in God's holy presence without dropping dead. So through this, we can see a problem arise that we can never be near God in an impure state. And us as fallen beings, that's a massive problem for us. But if we keep going through the rest of the verses in Isaiah, there's hope for us. So we're up to verse 3 where the seraphim called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Now, we've heard in the first scripture I read, it stated that God is holy, 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 is the Lord. The only attribute in the Bible that starts three times together. It must be important. It can't be something we can overlook. That if... Day and night, in repetition, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why three times? Why not just one? Surely we get the picture that God is holy if someone tells us we're holy, or even twice. Back in Bible times, the rabbis, even Jesus used it, they used to repeat things twofold in repetition to get the, to emphasise a point that they're getting at. You can see it in the Gospels where Jesus said, truly, truly, or Lord, Lord. But the only time we see threefold in the Bible is when it states that God is holy, holy, holy. So for it to be holy, 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 and not just holy, holy, or even holy, it's something we need to look at. And sorry for the amount of holies, I'm almost going to beat the Bible with the 900 holies, but hopefully this is coming across of how important it actually is. The reason it's threefold is because it's something... When something is repeated, the writer wants us to remember it and not to forget it. We need to know the importance of God's holiness. The word is trying to bring, bring our attention back that God is a holy God. 
it brings brings us brings our attention to the fact that God is holy through his moral pure morally pure his holiness is the attribute that the Bible extols as God's greatest attribute. A God is hol- as God is holy, 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 the Bible doesn't put it he's love, 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 or he's omnipresent, 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 or he's just, just, just. The word says he is holy, holy, holy. His holiness is stated threefold so that we would recognize that God's highest attribute is holiness. He is all of his attributes. We've realised this, we've gone through this, and we can see it through the series that we've done. But, but the holiness of God is the only attribute that defines the rest of his attributes. God is holiness. God is love, and God is just. But these attributes are defined by his holiness. He acts in love out of his perfect purity, He acts just out of his perfect purity. He does all things in perfect purity. God's holiness defines each of his attributes. And he only acts in that perfect purity of his holiness. The word is drawing our attention that above all things, God is a holy God. And only acts in all things and everything that he does through perfect purity. And above all, he is holy. We can't separate any of the other attributes from his holiness because if we do that, we're not serving the true and perfect holy God. Instead, we're serving an imagery of God that we might like better. All right, so back to Isaiah 6, verse 4 and 5. We're seeing these verses, Isaiah's response about being in the presence of the holy God. And we saw before that not even the seraphim can look at God and they're sinless. And as we see Isaiah's response, we can start to see the destructive power of the holiness of God when we're unpure. Isaiah knew the laws about purity and impurity. He knew the laws from Leviticus. He was part of the Israelites. You can imagine the fear of being in the presence of God and knowing that you're unclean at that moment and being afraid of being destroyed. Isaiah didn't just appear in the Lord's presence and go, oh, oh, hey, there you are. Sorry, I didn't see you there. But instead, the revelation of God's holiness to Isaiah was that full on and that noticeable, that disturbing thing for him straight off the bat. He says, woe is me, straight off the way, straight off. Isaiah knew he didn't measure up. And not only Isaiah acknowledgement come from him, but he also said, I come from an unclean people that we've all fallen. So far, we discovered God's holy, about God's holiness that he is holy. And through his holiness and how he acts, through all these other attributes, his holiness defines God. He can't act outside of that perfect purity, otherwise he would cease to be holy. We see that God's holy presence is so perfect and good that not even heavenly beings can look upon him. And that if we enter God's holy presence in an unclean and unpure state, then we're in some serious trouble. It's terrifying to think what would happen as soon as we enter God's be face-to-face with God, and straight away is woe is me. And we know that we don't measure up. This causes a problem. God has called us to live holy lives, but how can we live a holy life when we're unclean and unworthy to enter the presence and physically unable to enter when we're in an unpure state? It seems like we're doomed, but we find in the next couple of verses, in verse 6 and 7, what says... 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and sins atoned for. We see in this verse that Isaiah's lips are touched by a coal from the altar. The seraphim says that his sins are atoned for. And through the coal touching Isaiah's lips, Isaiah is made pure and clean before God. His sins are atoned for, meaning that he was forgiven and it was sufficient and instantly effective. Isaiah was transformed by that coal from being completely impure in front of God to be made pure and able to survive his holiness of God. What gives this great imagery into the, our answer, into our problem of us being unclean before God. As we see the coal in Isaiah's case, the exact same way Christ is for us and what he has done for us. We see the solution to the problem that that is Christ, who died for us, who made us clean and pure in front of the Father. He enables us to come, having completely atoned for our sins. And the atonement is more than sufficient and instantly effective for those who believe in Christ alone. As we see what Christ has done on the earth, we can see his holiness flowing out of him. We see through the gospel of Christ touching and laying hands on the sick and the dead. And through, according to the law in Leviticus, this would make any one of us unclean. Touching a sick person with leprosy or a dead person in those days would class you as an unclean. But instead, we see the opposite effect in Christ's case. Instead of Christ becoming unclean, he makes those with leprosy clean. He heals them. He raises, it, he raises people from the dead. We can see the outflow of God's holiness through Christ. The same way the coal made Isaiah clean, Christ makes us clean before God for those who follow him and call on him. Through ourselves, life is hopeless. We'll never measure up. We'll never be able, be able to run away from our sins. Our sins will rule our lives. We'll constantly be impure and trapped, constantly be trapped in the woe is me in front of a holy God. But through Christ alone, he is completely atoned and it's fully sufficient for those who put his hope and trust in him. We are transformed by Christ, like Isaiah was transformed by the burning coal. The ones, the ones that are as good as dead in the presence of a holy God are made alive in Christ. What allows us to share the good news to others, bringing them hope, but also we think... Think of God's holiness. We don't need to fear being destroyed because we have a living hope in Christ. Holy, holy, holy is our God and he will continue to be holy and never changing. Through Christ, we're made, made clean. So Colossians 1, 21 and 23 says... And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I Paul became a minister. Through Christ, we are made holy and blameless before God. But that's not where the story ends. As I said right at the start, we are called to live a holy life. God calls us to live a holy life once we have been made holy. Holiness isn't just a God attribute. 
The level of holiness changes between us and God. We can never be at the level that God is, but God still calls us to live that holy life. We can reflect that holiness on this earth, and we are called to reflect it. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. What says? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you and the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with the fear throughout time of your exile. As you can see, we are made holy and we are called to reflect God's holiness as he is holy. Not only called, but is the will of God for your life is to be holy. If you read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 7. Finally then, brothers, we seek and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do more and more. For you know what the instructions we gave through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honour, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who... Do not know God, that no one transgresses and the wrong his brother in the matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has called you for impurity but holiness. God has not called you for impurity but in holiness. God is calling you to live a holy life. It's a journey to pursue holiness. Sorry. Being saved into holy, being saved into holiness is great. The day that we give our life to Christ, you are made holy and clean. But that's not where it ends. God's called called you to live a sanctified life, and through Him, becoming more and more holy each and every day. It's a process. The more that we grow, the more that we hate sin, the more we become like Christ. He has called us to be, live sanctified lives. For example. Um, me and Sarah were obviously married. Um, she's screwing up her face because I haven't told her about this example, so this could go either way, but that's all right. <laughs> so we're married. So if our marriage was to define the day we got married, if we constantly went back to that day we got married and say, yeah, that's the defining moment, then we're never going to grow as a couple. We're never going to get anywhere, and eventually we're going to run into problems as we're constantly living in the past of that day that we made a commitment That day was the day we got married, the day we committed to each other, but the marriage is across the whole lifetime of growing together. It's the same way as when we give our life to Christ. The day we do it is not the defining moment. It's the day it's happened. It's the day we committed to Christ, but our journey needs to be growing as we walk forward. Otherwise, is there an actual relationship there? We need to be growing in holiness. We need to be growing to that sanctified life that Christ has called us to live. 
God has called us to be holy as he is holy. He has called us to set our lives apart from everyone else. The meaning of God's holiness is he's set apart. He's above everyone else. He's also called us to set our lives apart from others. We're called to make a difference. We're called to reflect his holiness. If, and if you haven't put your trust in Christ, can I urge you, today is the best day you can do it. Absolutely. Um, there's no way other to the Father other than Christ. Christ is that coal that atones for our sins. He's died on the cross for us. And if you need someone to talk to, anyone here would be happy to talk to you and lead you to him. We are not worthy to be in God's presence, but through Christ, he purifies us. He atones for us for the one day for the hope for us to be there to sing, holy, holy, holy is the King of Kings. And there is no greater hope than that. And I reckon I'll leave it there for this week. So I'll just pray. Father, we we thank you that you're our holy God. We thank you that you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And what a privilege it is to come to you, Lord, and serve you. Father, we pray that we'll live out holy lives, Lord, to reflect you, Father. We pray that our lives will be set apart so people can see you, Lord. They won't see us, but they'll see you, Father. And we, we just pray over this. In your name, Father. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.